Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Rowley. I get to serve here at Calvary as one of the elders, and I'm excited to have the chance to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you've got Bibles, you can open up to Psalm chapter 138. The scripture is going to be up on the screen, too, if you don't have a Bible with you. But before I jump in, why don't I just pray for a moment? God, we, we need you here. We all need you. And we are asking that the Holy Spirit would take the words of God and transform our hearts and our church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been singing your heart out and you thought that nobody was looking at you, but turns out somebody was looking at you? You ever have that happen to you in the car where you're like at a red light and you're just singing your heart out and then you look to your right and someone's right there and they see, how do you react in that moment? Do you stop singing? This morning, early this morning, actually, I was out for a walk, and I, I was actually singing. And then I, I saw this guy walking his dog by me, and I kind of toned it down a little bit. I was a little bit shy. I know a, a really great little five-year-old boy who has the most remarkable voice, and he loves singing his little heart out. But if he knows that somebody's watching him, he stops singing. Anybody here like that five-year-old little boy? I know that that can be me sometimes. There's a, there's a really famous, world-famous philosopher by the name of Buddy the Elf. And uh, <laughs> Buddy the Elf, he says that singing is just like talking, except it's longer and you move your voice up and down, right? Can anybody relate? Singing's not all that hard. Well, we are going to not spend most of our time talking about what Buddy the Elf says about singing. We're going to see what King David had to say about singing. And uh, David had a lot of things to say about singing, and this is where we're going to start the sermon. The first big idea today from Psalm 138 is this. God's people are people that sing and praise God no matter who's listening. And we see this in verse 1 and verse 2. Let me read it for you. David says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So David here is worshiping God in the presence of all these other gods. Do you see that lowercase g there? It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Sometimes in the Bible it's translated to refer to the, the God of the Bible, also known as Yahweh. Other times it refers to other gods, false gods. The idea here is that David is worshiping the true God, his God, right in the presence of all these other counterfeit gods, which kind of matches some other things he says, like in Psalm 95, verse 3, David says, the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. And in Psalm 96, David says, for great is the Lord and great to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. The first thing we learn about singing from David is that David seems to be content with worshiping his God and honoring his God right there in the presence of many other so-called gods. There's a lot of competition for worship in David's day. Sounds like today, doesn't it? 
In the ancient Near East, David, he would have been literally surrounded by all these different ideas of who God was. And all of these so-called gods went by particular names. Elil, Marduk, Aser, El. These were all the gods that would have surrounded King David and his people and his culture at the same time that he was committed to worshiping the true God. I mean, one way that you could think about what would it be like to be a follower of God during the time of David, just imagine yourselves for a few moments standing in the center of Times Square, New York. And you're standing in Times Square and your senses are just going crazy because you're surrounded by so many different things. I'm not saying all the things are bad, okay? There's there's people, there's buildings, there's advertisements, there's cars, buses, cinemas, theaters, trains, noise, all these different things trying to get your attention, trying to get your affection. And that's what the world David lived in was like. Surrounded by many so-called gods, David was content to say, God, I'm going to praise you right in the middle of all of it so that everybody can hear. It's not that different from the world we live in. Now, I think if David were to try to contextualize his message for us in 2021, what might he say? How might he write it to modern people? Maybe something like, God, in the presence of Netflix, in the presence of media, God, I'm just going to praise you. God, in the presence of my boyfriend or my girlfriend, in the presence of my boss, I'm going to praise you, God. I'm going to honor you. God, in the presence of people who think I'm ridiculous because I believe in you, God, I'm going to praise you. In the presence of my classmates, in the presence of people who mock me, God, I'm going to praise you. In the presence of anyone or anything, that wants our attention and our affection, David would say, God, I'm just going to praise you. You're worthy of the praise. And all of a sudden, I think we're starting to see this is what it means to be a Christian. Christians are people who, in the presence of all these different alternatives, in the presence of all these different choices, we as Christians, as God's people together, say, hey, we are going to praise you. We know there's other stuff out there. We know when we walk outside these doors, there's all kinds of choices we need to make. But God, in the presence of all of these things, you've got our hearts, right? That's what it means to worship God. But it doesn't make any sense to worship a God that you don't know, does it? I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience. Have you ever been to a sporting event, but you didn't know the sport? Like, you didn't know the rules. You didn't know how the game was played. And you're sitting there in the stands, and you're watching something going on out on the field, right? And then the fans start to go crazy. And you're like, what do I do? (laughs) Do I cheer? Do I boo? Do I cry? What's going on? I don't know what's going on in the field. And so sometimes there's that, you know, we're like, okay, I'm in the stands with all these people. They're all cheering. I, I probably should clap too, right? But you feel a little bit like an outsider. You feel a little bit like a phony, right? Like you don't know what's going on, but you're just clapping anyways. Have you ever had that experience? It's possible to go through the motions, right? 
Or have you ever had that experience? Maybe you're in a group of people and somebody says a joke and you don't get it, but everybody else in the room seems to get the joke. What do you do in that moment? You laugh anyways, right? You're like, ah, but you don't know what's going on. And how does it leave you feeling? Oh, feel like a fake, huh? You feel like, oh man, somebody's gonna find me out. Somebody's gonna figure out, I don't know what's going on here. And I'm just going through the motions. Believe it or not, it is totally possible to do the same thing at church. Totally possible to come to church, to come to worship, to sing the songs, to clap, to pray, but not actually know who God is. But get this, the flip side of that is that people who actually know God in a personal way, you know what happens? Worship naturally flows right out of that knowledge of God that is intimate. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, David says he's praising God in the presence of false gods. And I'm going to say that the motive behind David's praising of God is that David actually has a real relationship with the God that he's praising. He actually knows who the God is. He's not just going through the motions. He, he knows who he's singing to. He's not just clapping and playing along. He's not just laughing at the joke he doesn't understand. David knows who the God is that he's singing to. That's our second big idea, verse 2 and verse 3. Worship explodes from people who know God personally. Verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Get verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. If you don't know God in a personal way, your worship is going to feel lame. Even for you, it will feel unsatisfying, like laughing at a joke you don't understand because you don't know who the God is that you're singing to. So let's press a little deeper into this. Why was David worshiping God? Why was David praising? Look at verse 2. In verse 2, David says he's worshiping God because of God's steadfast love. Those two words, steadfast love. Steadfast love, it's two words translated in English. In Hebrew, it's this word hesed, and it refers to God's loyal love, his loyal love. Got it? David is thanking God for his loyal love that he has shown to him again and again. If you want to press into this idea of God's loyal love, Psalm 136, the entire psalm is dedicated to celebrating the loyal love to God. Let me give you a couple examples. It says, again and again, it says, his hesed, his loyal love endures forever. It says, because of God's hesed, he created the universe. Because of God's hesed, he rescued people from Egypt. Because of God's hesed, his loyal love, he defeated the Egyptian army. Because of God's hesed, God's people can count on him to rescue them. 
Oftentimes in, in the Old Testament, even when God's people do ridiculous things and run away from God, you know what they do? They come back to God and they appeal to God's hesed, his loyal love. And they say, hey, God, God, you have loyal love. We've been really stupid. Can we come back to you? This idea of God's loyal love, such an important concept. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 23. David famously says to God that God's hesed will follow him all the days of his life. God's loyal love is consistently loyal, even when his people are not loyal to him. Another place in the Old Testament, uh, there's this story of a man who marries a woman, and the woman is not faithful to him. She breaks his heart. She runs away with other people. She brings shame to his family, pain to his heart. Surprisingly, in that story, God compares himself to the husband who was betrayed by the wife. And God said that he was like that man and that even though his people were like the woman who ran away from him, even though they had betrayed him, God says he has hesed, loyal love towards them. He doesn't give up on his people. In fact, God describes his relationship with his people like this. This is from Hosea. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, said, and in mercy. Amazingly, God wants to betroth his people to himself. He intends to show steadfast, loyal love towards us, his people. But us, the people of God, often are like Chapter 6 in Hosea, which says, God says that your love, your hesed, is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. God's loyal love is compared with our rather unloyal love. But isn't that good? Our God is loyal to us. Our God shows loyal love. Most people don't respond to betrayal the way that the loyal, loving God does and that's why David is praising God here in Psalm 138, because he has an understanding that God is loyal to him. And look, if, if you're new to this idea of God, let this be your starting point today. Will you let this be the beginning of your journey that God loves you, that God pursues you, no matter where you're at in your story with God, no matter how far away from God you have run this morning, no matter how bad the situation is that you've gotten yourself into, I know that God is calling someone here today to come home to God. God has incredible loyal love for you, even if you have not been loyal to him. Will you hold on to that this morning? In verse 2, David also mentions that he's thanking God and praising God for God's faithfulness and for his exalted word. We're not going to unpack that today. You can do that on your own. But then in verse 3, David, he shows that there's this real personal piece of the relationship from God, from God. He says that he's cried out to God and that God has responded by answering him and making him bold. The literal phrase says, you made me bold in my soul with strength. So David here 
in verse 3, he's writing as somebody who's had some real personal experience with God, with God's loyal love, with God's exalted word, and with God answering prayer. Have you experienced God? Do you know God in a personal way? God can be experienced. God can be known. The late American theoretical physicist, uh, he was also a Nobel Prize winner, Richard Feynman. He famously, uh, he, he tells this story about how people could know what a brown thrush is. If you don't know what a brown thrush is, it's like this little bird. Really interesting little bird, actually. And he talks about how a person could know the name of that bird. A person could identify the bird as a brown thrush. And you might know the name of the bird in English, in Arabic, in Mandarin, in Korean. You may know the name of that bird in every language in the world and know nothing about how that bird actually lives. You may know the name of the bird in every language, but know nothing of the bird. I think it's interesting. There's a vast difference between knowing the name of someone or something and knowing someone or something in a personal and intimate way. There's a vast difference between knowing a name and knowing someone. You might know my name, but know nothing about me besides the fact that I get up and talk in front of everybody every few weeks. And I may know your name, and know nothing of who you are as a person. Let me tell you, there are people in churches all around this country who know all kinds of things about God, but don't know him. There are people who have PhDs in biblical studies, and they can parse every single Greek and Hebrew verb in the entire Bible, but they don't know the God who inspired that Bible. And there's people here who know every book of the Bible, and you could pass a systematic theology test. But maybe you don't know the God who wrote that Bible in the first place. I don't want you to take this as a slam from me, because this is just as hard for me as it is for anybody in this room. I want you to know there's more to God. There is so much more to God that can be known. Because God wants to be known by you. There's a million directions we could go from this point, but hear me, God is not a philosophy. God is not just an idea. He can be experienced personally. And just as Pastor Taylor last week, he encouraged you before he preached just to pray, God, speak to me. I want to encourage some of you with a thought kind of based roughly on Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Let me read Romans 5, verse 5 for you. It says, Hope does not put us to shame, but because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You could spend a, a lifetime on this verse. But at its core, at the core of this verse, it's showing us that through the incredible work of the Holy Spirit, God is pouring his love into the hearts of his people. This is an experiential way that people can actually know God. 
In the Old Testament, that love of God, we already learned, it's hesed. In the New Testament, Romans 5, it's talking about agape, a word that many of you are probably familiar with. The love of God can be poured into your heart, and God can be known by you today. And just as Pastor Taylor encouraged us to pray last week, I want to encourage some of you. Some of you need to pray this prayer this morning. God, God, I know about you. I know about you. Or God, I know your name. But God, I want to know you personally. Would you pray that prayer? Would you have the courage to cry out to God, God, there's more I want to know you this morning. Let me encourage you, as David would in this text, pursue intimacy with God through his word, through the Bible, through prayer, and in reliance on the Holy Spirit. Okay? Ready to move on? I was talking with someone this week, and it became really clear as we were in this conversation that the the woman I was talking with she was not looking at the world through a hopeful perspective. <laughs> Granted, we were in a funeral parlor when we were having the conversation, so it wasn't exactly like the most wonderful place in the world, but it became very apparent as I was talking to her, like she, she was just not looking at the world through hopeful eyes. And it reminded me of this, this scene. I don't know if any of you have read the Lord of the Rings books. I know, I'm a nerd. I read all the books. In the very first book, there's this scene where the wizard, whose name is Gandalf, he shows up at the main character's house, this guy named Frodo. And he starts telling the main character, hey, you're going to go on this journey. There's going to be dragons. There's going to be fire. You're probably going to die. Everybody's going to die. But you're going to have to save the world. It was one of those talks. <laughs> And Frodo, understandably, is like, oh my goodness, he's terrified. He, like, he doesn't know if he's going to make it. He doesn't really want to go on this journey that's probably going to end up in all kinds of people being died and dragons. And, but his friend, his friend's name is Sam. And I love Sam because Sam heard exactly the same thing that the wizard told Frodo. But instead of fear... Something, I don't know if something was wrong with Sam, but Sam was excited. He could see the same thing through eyes of faith and imagine the journey and imagine the beauty of saving the world. Sounds pretty good, huh? Well, believe it or not, David in verse 4 and verse 5, I think that David is seeing the world through hope-filled eyes. This is our third big idea. God's people see the future with hopeful eyes. Let me read verse 4 and 5. David says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Wow, that's a hopeful prayer, right? All, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. That is hope-filled praying. David is praying with confidence that the enemies of God will actually become people who are giving praise to God. That's a prayer. And the reason why David is able to pray with confidence, verse 4, he has confidence in God's word. Verse 5, 
he has confidence that the glory of his God is so compelling that all the kings of the earth could not help but worship that God. Did you know that God's word today, God's word in 2021 is just as powerful and compelling as it ever has been? Last weekend, I was with my boys at my mom and dad's house, and it was late at night, and we bought them like all the glow sticks you could buy at the dollar store, and they were literally covered from head to toe in glow sticks. It was great. They were running all around the backyard in these glow sticks and playing like capture the flag and stuff. So anyways, the problem with glow sticks is this. Like they start to dim after a few hours, right? And the next day there's like no glowing light and everybody is really bummed out because the glow sticks are out of power. A lot of folks think that that's what God's word is like. Oh yeah, the Bible was great a long time ago. It was awesome. I mean, there's some good stories in there, but I'm kind of thinking that God's word has dimmed a little bit. It's not quite as powerful as it used to be. I mean, sure, yeah, during the time of David, I believe that God's word was great. But you know what? David pushes back against that line of thinking, and he shows us in his hope-filled prayer that God's word is just as powerful as it ever has been because he believes that God's word can be used to transform the hearts of these kings who at the time that he writes this, they don't want anything to do with God. That's a hope-filled prayer based on the foundation of his faith and the unchanging power and nature and ability of God's word to transform hearts. That's good news for us today, isn't it? Because you know what? This psalm that, that we're reading today and studying is the same one that David had thousands of years ago. And God, through his love, has preserved his incredible word for us, modern people who need so badly to hear those words that have not dimmed one bit over the span of history. Isn't that good news? We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised, though, because this is God we're talking about. How could God's words dim? How could God's words not have power? And how could God's kingdom not surpass all other kingdoms on this planet? This is the fourth thing I want us to think about. God's people are citizens of an upside-down kingdom. And by that, I mean... Things in God's kingdom, they don't work quite the way that things in man's kingdom works. Verse 6 and verse 7 says this, For though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The, the normal way that the world works, the strong people, they've got the power, they're in charge. The beautiful and the wealthy people, they're the important ones. And people are valued by what they do, not by being made in the image of God. That's the way the normal thing works on this planet. But God's kingdom priorities flip that upside down, don't they? Because in God's kingdom, these scriptures we just read said that 
God, who is the most important one, regards the least important one as being important. And in God's kingdom, the proud people are the ones that God knows from afar. God does not have intimacy with the proud. God has intimacy with the humble and the lowly. And in verse 7, David shows us that his life is a lived-out example of this principle. Verse 7, David talks about a great danger that he's facing. He says his life needed to be rescued. And really, no matter what part of David's life you, you study, you realize that this principle is always at work with David. I mean, he was the, the youngest brother from his whole family, the least likely one to become the king of Israel, but he's the one that God chose. Or how about this other story? All the kids in here know the story of David and Goliath, right? I mean, this is an example of this principle being lived out. The proud fall, the humble exalted. David was betrayed by his own son. Everybody turns against David, but God lifts up David again and again. David had a lot of experience with God, God flipping things. Anybody else in this room had experiences with God doing that? God turning things upside down? God flipping the order of the way things should be to elevate the humble, to lower the proud? God coming through when you least expect it? I know I'm not the only person here. David compares his rescue to the way that God saved people in Exodus. Again, look at verse 7. He says, you stretched out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Okay, anytime you see the hand of God being, being described in the Bible, when it's talking about the hand of God, it's talking about, okay, God's people, they're down for the count. It looks like they're out. But then you see the hand of God, the mighty hand of God, lifts them up. It's like they're down and out. There's no hope. But then the hand of God lifts up the people of God. They look like they're out, but they're not. The clearest place you see this in the Bible is with Jesus. I'm going to read a passage for you from Philippians chapter 2. A lot of you know this passage. Let, let this just, just spend some time thinking about this. This is Jesus talking about here. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There has never been anybody in history who looked like they were more down for the count than the perfect Son of God who lived a perfect life and was crucified with criminals. And they took his lifeless dead body and laid it in a tomb 
and they sealed the tomb. And can you imagine the thought going through Satan's mind as he felt like he had won a victory as the Son of God is laying breathless in the tomb? And there from that tomb comes the greatest reversal of all history where God vindicated the Son of God. And God did exactly to Jesus what David said that God was going to do to him. God rescued him, God raised him, and God vindicated him. Verse 9 and 11 reminds us that God has now highly exalted Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee on this planet will bow But this shouldn't surprise us, because this is how God's kingdom works. In God's kingdom, the humble win. The proud don't win. Anybody thankful that's true? Citizens in God's kingdom are never down for the count. Why? Because the king's not down. And the king is never down for the count. Praise God. The last thing I want you to think about today, the fifth idea, is this. Hesed is holding you. Remember, I said Hesed, loyal love. Hesed is holding you as trouble knocks on the door. Verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Verse 8, we see God is a purpose-fulfilling God. God fulfills his purpose for you and for me. Yes, even for individual people, like David. God loves you. He cares so deeply for you. And as we see from David, David's hope is based on hesed, Loyal love. Verse 8, David affirms his faith in God's steadfast love. But you know what? David knows some trouble's coming, doesn't he? Why else would David say at the very end of this verse, the very end of the psalm, God, don't forsake the work of your hands. David is simultaneously holding on to God's Loyal love for him, confident in God's loyal love, but David knows trouble's coming. Trouble always comes. David could simultaneously have faith in God and be able to look at reality with sober lenses to see that there was trouble right down the road. Faith does not mean we don't cry out to God sometimes. God Where are you? God, don't forsake me. But as we cry out, we can be confident in God's loyal love for us. I want to call the worship team up. As we think about what does this look like for us, modern people, it means that we trust God's love for us. Even when we see trouble, knocking on the door. And it will. We don't need to fear being forsaken. We learn to 
see the world through the lens of God's kingdom, where we remember that sometimes it looks like God's kingdom people are down for the count, but they're not. Because the king cannot be defeated and we can rest in Hesed. Why? Why can we rest in God's loyal love? At the end of the day, why? Why can Christians rest in God's Hesed for you? Because it was that loyal love which led the Son of God to this earth to give his life to save us. And ultimately, Christians do not need to fear that God will forsake us. The very last words of David in the psalm are, God, don't forsake me. Christians do not need to fear that God will forsake you. Why? Because the Bible says that God forsook his own son on the cross. Instead of forsaking us, God forsook his perfect son who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin so that we can be brought back into that loving, loyal relationship with the God who created us. So Calvary, you don't need to fear that God will forsake you because of the cross, because of what Jesus has already done for you, because of his incredible love displayed for you on Calvary. You can be confident and you can rest in God's loyal love even as trouble knocks on the door. Those of you who have come into the church and you, you walk through the main doors, you should have received a little cup like this. We're gonna move into our time of communion. Communion is a beautiful practice that at this very moment is being carried out by Christians all around this planet. It's a wonderful tradition that has been passed on from Jesus. For thousands of years, Christians have remembered the sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross for sins. We've remembered the shed blood of Jesus. And we've reminded ourselves that he's coming again. So for anyone who is a follower of Jesus today, you are invited to partake of communion with us. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church in Corinth and he was kind of setting up some guidelines for them about how they could remember this special meal that Jesus took with his disciples and how they could remember his death and resurrection. And he wrote these words to that church and I'll read them to this church. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat.
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. God, we thank you. Uh, these are familiar words to many of us, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will work in our hearts. God, we don't want anything to be familiar. We don't want anything to feel ordinary. God, stir in us a love for you and help us to rest in your steadfast, loyal love for us until you come again.